0: This is hell.
1: Good morning. I survived the fourth with all my digits and most of my brain cells intact. How about you? At least I think so. I'm actually speaking to you from three days in the past. I know, that's the kind of technology we get to play with in hell. Maybe chicken on me at some point to verify my prediction of my well-being after celebrating America's birthday. American listeners, how did you celebrate the birth of our, as our boy Thomas Jefferson fancied the place, our Empire of Liberty? Let us know on Facebook, Twitter, Discord, or Patreon, or email Chuck at at chuckatthisishell.com. We'd love to hear how you spent the fourth, and I'm sure our convalescing post-op misanthrope will love to hear from you as well. Filling in for Chuck Mertz, I'm Will Ippen. Chuck is currently on the mend. He plans to return to the show on Monday, July the 10th, on which day you'll be freed from my clutches. As much as I've enjoyed this time, I do miss our old format and our fearless leader over here at the studio. That is Second Story Studios at 251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. I assume that over here, last night, in the future, anyone who lives around the studio was probably kept up late by The impromptu fire, unsanctioned fireworks show over at Warren Park. I hope it took place. It's one of my uh, fondest traditions in the far north side of Chicago, where I've lived for oh too many years and hope to live for oh too many more here. I don't know how Chuck spent his fourth. I'm sure he'll uh, fill us all in on Monday. I spent mine, or I intend to spend mine anyway, uh, in Colorado with family. That's right, I'll be Rocky Mountain High for a family reunion next week with all the weirdos I'm related to on my dad's side of the family. And there are some uh, new family members I have yet to meet. I'm eager to meet them. So I'll be away from the show until July 19th. I know, I know. Say it ain't so. You've probably all built a parasocial bond with me over the past couple of weeks. But I assure you that Kat and Dan and, of course, Chuck Mertz will have you covered. Upon his triumphant return on Monday, he'll be able to not only fill you on how he spent his fourth, but also what it probably feels like to be stabbed in the gut repeatedly, as he put it, as he described his pain uh, post-op. It's always a good uh, frame of reference knowledge to have for, you know, dinner parties or Independence Day shindigs. Or on God's favorite radio and podcast show this is hell if you enjoy what you hear on this is hell consider supporting us on patreon you can find us at patreon.com slash this is hell patreon subscribers get access to hundreds of exclusive patreon episodes which include Chuck's pithy monologues accompanied by timely interviews taken from our deep and expanding archives that go back to 1996. Supporters also get a $5 discount on all merch. First crack at answering the question from hell, which by the way will be returning next week. As well as a new perk, and I need more of you patrons to avail yourselves these new perk to keep me in content for Chuck. Patreon subscribers get an opportunity to ask Chuck their own question from hell. Every Patreon episode, I, producer Will Ippen, have the power to pick one of the questions that you have the power to ask Chuck. And I don't apply any filter here, listeners. He needs the raw, unadulterated questions that I know are, you are, are all, uh, burning for you. And I get to sit here and ask it and watch him on the other side of the glass squirm and stammer his way into a thoughtful response. To all of your questions from hell. Uh, keep these coming, and uh, if you're interested in this perk, consider joining us on Patreon. Coming up, we have an interview from July 4th, 2009, in which Chuck interviewed Chalmers Johnson, president of the Japan. Policy Research Institute and Professor Emeritus at the University of California, San Diego. Chalmers was author around the time of the interview of a few pieces. One appeared in Tom Dis-tap- Dispatch entitled, How to Deal with America's Empire of Bases, as well as the truth dig piece, Chalmers Johnson on the Cost of Empire. Also, it's co-authored story with Tom editor, Tom Engelhart, entitled Economic Death Spiral at the Pentagon. Chalmers Johnson also wrote the trilogy that includes Nemesis, The Crisis of the American Republic, Blowback, The Costs and Consequences of American Empire, and The Sorrows of Empire militarism secrecy and the end of the republic all available from metropolitan books and all with very uplifting titles i might add also coming up after the interview we will hear another moment of truth from jeff dorchin one from his archives this one comes from november 10th 2018 when prefiguring his super truth items and super truth is all one word trademarked i might add jeff once told us about some bats he made up because we live in bat country this is hell let's cue the interview i'll catch you back in the present listeners
0: Manufacturing
2: descent since 1996. This is
0: hell. On the line with us right now is Chalmers Johnson. He wrote the Tom Dispatch piece, How to Deal with America's Empire of Bases, uh, and May's Truth Dig piece, Chalmers Johnson on the Cost of Empire. Chalmers' last story for Tom Dispatch back in February, written with Tom editor Tom Englehart, was entitled Economic Death Spiral at the Pentagon. Chalmers is the uh, president of the Japan Policy Research Institute, uh, professor emeritus at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, Chalmers wrote the trilogy that includes Nemesis, The Crisis of the American Public, Blowback, The Cost of and Consequences of American Empire and The Sorrows of Empire, Militarism, Secrecy, and the End of the Republic. Each one of those books was published by uh, Henry Holt's uh, Metropolitan Books. We have a direct link to the Metropolitan Books webpage for each one of those books, so you can purchase them directly through the publisher. And all that is at the front page of our website. Good afternoon, Chalmers. Thank you. It's great to have you back on the show, sir. It's always great to have you on the show. And uh, early this week when I started thinking about booking this week's show, and I was like, it's going to be on the 4th of July, the guy I have to have wrap up our show on the 4th of July has got to be Chalmers Johnson.
2: Well, that's very kind of
0: you. Of course, it's very kind of you, always, sir. Uh, and you went to university. Are you teach at university or professor emeritus at University of California, San Diego, where my brother graduated from? So that's another big plus. So, oh, <laughs> so the uh, defense budget budget it keeps on uh, going up without much debate. Much second guessing, much concern for the economy, much concern for taxes. Almost done, right? And that includes what you call the U.S. Empire of bases, which alone costs 102 billion dollars a year. As you write, already the world, already the world's costliest military enterprise, and the world's costliest military enterprise just got more expensive. We're now building a new embassy in Islamabad, Pakistan, with uh, which, at 736 million, will be the second priciest ever constructed. Only four million dollars less if cost overruns don't occur than the Vatican City-sized one. Bush administration put up in Baghdad. Right. Uh, this is the backbone of the U.S. empire worldwide. And why, in my seven-year-old version of uh, why in my seven-year-old version of Microsoft Word, does it suggest that I'm uh, spelling "empire" wrong or using it in a grammatically incorrect fashion when I type in "U.S. empire"? I'm not too sure. But almost 800 of these bases in some, 100, some uh, 150 uh, countries worldwide. Is this what America looks like overseas to the rest of the world? Do you think that how much of an impression do these facilities give in the way in which other uh, pe- uh, people from overseas view our government? Well, they um, affect almost all the people
2: on earth today. They strongly leave the impression that the United States prefers to settle its international relations problems through military force. Uh, moreover, just the physical presence of that many bases, over eight hundred, um, is that uh, the the Americans that non-Americans that foreigners encounter abroad, uh, turn out to be heavily armed young men uh, who are uh, often racially biased, uh, often uh, hyped up by their training to uh, to believe that they're that. Uh, Good and God are both on their side uh, it's a um, it's a public relations disaster gets worse all the time uh, we can't afford it
0: we can't afford it, and it, it, it is a public relations disaster. But uh, do, do you think that the three, the three, fa- the three aspects or factors that uh, people experience overseas the most about America are either corporations that are from America, uh, these bases, and just our military presence in general? Are, are, are those three things equally having an impact, or do you think that these military bases really are the key to w- in, in, in the way in which uh, the rest of the world views us?
2: Well, I think they are the key. I would also add here uh, uh, what um, Bob Herbert in the the New York Times columnist calls the shame of of the American military. That is, the treatment of women in our own armed forces and above all, the treatment of women in countries that allow us to put in bases. We have a reputation now as uh, as as a nation of rapists. And it goes on too long. Sexually violent crimes are growing all the time. They're just ubiquitous. They're not very well handled by the military. A Discipline is non-existent on this subject. So that uh, if we'd uh, only start shutting down our empire, we'd probably get a sigh of relief from half the world's population.
0: And you mentioned the uh, disturbing and horrible events that have been going on for uh, more than 57 years now, in Okinawa. Uh, uh, they. You talk about uh, uh, if the base there was closed down, it might at least stop funding the same American military personnel who regularly rape women, uh, Japanese women, at the rate of about two every month and make right. life miserable for whoever lives near the 38 U.S. bases in Okinawa. Right. Um, but, you know, this is a The sto- noise
2: pollution is unbelievable. It's uh, been reported now heavily that the sounds at Kadena Air, Air Base uh which is huge and built for thermonuclear war, are simply intolerable.
0: But, you know, this is a story that I'm aware of, the Okinawa rape situation uh, by U.S. soldiers um, on the base there. Uh, I'm familiar with it because of writing that you've done in the past. I mean, 10, 12 years ago that I was... Well, it's an
2: American scandal that the uh, press is so lax in uh, performing uh, what we give it all these privileges for, including... uh, uh, it's uh, uh, the First Amendment, uh, is that they've failed us so badly. They don't try to penetrate uh, the government world in which its chief uh, line of defense is secrecy and expose it to the light of day, to expose how we're spending our money, what it costs, uh, and the uh, consequences, intended and unintended.
0: So why is it that this kind of story is not reported in the mainstream? Is it just simply that it's uh, editors decide, managing editors decide somewhere along the line, look, this is going to be a story that's uh, against some, at least individuals, within the U.S. military, and we just can't write anti-military news?
2: I think you've got it exactly right, that uh, they are scared of touching this subject, that it... um it doesn't conform to uh, stereotypes that we have of ourselves. Speaking here on the 4th of July, uh, we run into them everywhere you turn. Uh, the, uh, the militarism in America today, the militarization of our society, has gone so far now that uh, even Eisenhower's famous warning seems pallid about the military-industrial complex. Uh, the, uh, but the truth of the matter is it won't go on that much longer uh, insolvency is beginning to look like a serious problem in the United States.
0: So, so, one way or the other, even if we decide to continue building these bases now, these uh, embassies, which are really military bases, uh, if we continue to build these uh, bases now, somewhere down the line, they're just not sustainable. You just do not see them as sustainable. So, even if we continue this program now, it's going to stop somewhere down the line. And if we stop. It st- has
2: the, contains the seeds of its own destruction. It's gone on too far. It uh, drains resources in our economy that we might use in um, uh, matters that we need to, matters of great importance, including uh, education, scientific research, uh, things of this sort. Uh, uh, And uh, uh, it's begun to show up rather badly in in our, uh, well, uh, above all in the recession that we have right now, the worst recession since the Great Depression.
0: So it's a bad thing. These bases are a bad thing for our bottom line. They're a bad thing for the impression that we give to other nations and to foreigners overseas and as far as trying to gather support for us because it looks like we put up these castles in other countries to try to uh, control them from these castles. No doubt. And and they also um, create human rights abuses as we've seen, you know, most, uh, the best example is what we've seen in Okinawa. You call these bases walled compounds, akin to medieval fortresses where American spies, soldiers, intelligence officers, and diplomats try to keep an eye on hostile populations in a region of war, one can predict with certainty that they will house a large contingent of Marines and include rooftop helicopter pads for quick getaways. Does any other country have this kind of operation other than the U.S.? Do other countries like China, Russia, the U.K., do other nations... Uh, have these kind of embassies, have these kind of bases, and try to interfere with the local domestic government as much as the U.S. does?
2: Definitely not. I mean, we just simply uh, can't imagine any other country that would begin to come close or that would think uh, <clears throat> that it could afford such extraordinary expenses. This is really unbelievably expensive to maintain over 800 military bases, and which the. Uh, with a volunteer army that expects to be uh, treated very comfortably, uh, fed well uh, with fresh food daily, it has to be flown in. Requires a lot of gasoline to do that, uh, and um, and things of that sort. It's uh, no other nation that I can think of even comes slightly close to trying to maintain that kind of empire. Um, there are still some old. <clears throat> Uh, vestiges of European empire in the form of Gibraltar and places like that, but uh, very, very few, and they're of uh, not terribly insignificant. We don't use these bases to defend the country either. They're a way of maintaining hegemony over as many nations as we can around the world.
0: Uh, you also point out how the expansion of such bases signals uh, Obama's intention to expand the war, not something I think uh, folks who are listening and voted uh, him into office want to hear. You write about this Kyrgyzstan base and how uh, Kyrgyzstan was thinking right. about kicking the United States out, uh, but then the annual rent that Washington pays for use of the base uh, more than tripled from seventeen point four million to sixty million dollars a year, which right. uh, let them stay mm-hmm. around. And you write how the Bush administ- or, sorry, the Obama administration, right. having committed itself to a widening war in the region is convinced it needs this base to store and transship supplies to Afghanistan. Is this why most of these bases exist? Not because they're necessarily popular in the country they're in, but the governments make a decision that the uproar over the base is mitigated by the tens of millions in much-needed cash.
2: Well, yes, I think that's true to the extent that there is a rational purpose behind it. The whole thing is irrational, though. Uh, That many bases simply doesn't make sense uh the British Empire, the Roman Empire, they probably had somewhere in the neighborhood of uh oh thirty five to fifty major bases around the world to maintain what was in their age in, uh, at the time of uh, the Roman Empire at the time of uh, Victoria in England, uh, uh, global empires that dominated more than, you know virtually all of the world. but nobody has ever tried to put together anything quite like this. Or believed for a moment that you could afford it. Uh, we don't just spend more than anybody else; we spend more than everybody else
3: on
0: it, the military. Right, and and the, this example of the Kyrgyzstan base, uh, and they all of a sudden, you know, we more than tripled our rent there, and that way, the, the Kyrgyzstan government allowed us to keep the base there—a base that was going to be uh, closed. You advised and the human
2: rights record in Kyrgyzstan has certainly not improved since we uh, uh, criticized them so seriously. Well over two years ago.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, you right as far as these bases are concerned, that you know what other countries should do is uh, go to the U.S. and say either up the ante or tell the Americans to go home because now it seems like you can cash in on this. We've already set the precedent with Kyrgyzstan. We'll gladly triple the rent if that's what it means. All you have to do is threaten to uh, kick us off the out of your country, and we'll either we'll give you more money. So a run on the bank is actually what you're kind of encouraging. How would America? Well, do- I'm
2: saying it's it's not up to me to encourage or anything else. The rest of the world are not stupid. They see what's happening. They draw inferences from it. uh, That it's perfectly uh, obvious that there is an asset here under the control of these uh, countries that they can use to exploit the weakened condition of the United States. And even though it doesn't make any economic sense whatsoever, uh, we continue to do it. That there's not been one peep out of our government certainly not out of the Obama administration about the need to to start shutting them down, closing them off, getting rid of Diego Garcia or well he's mentioned that he'd like to close Guantanamo prison but the progress is painfully slow
0: You'd have to get uh, the U.S. to admit that there is a Diego Garcia <laughs> base first. It which, would, yeah. <laughs> that would be another, a problem. Um, but uh, is, is the problem that we are facing right now, is it the military spending itself, or is it also what we're spending it on? In other words, could this kind of spending be rationalized if it went into other programs? Is it just the amount of money that we're spending, or is it the amount of the, 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 where, the place in which we're spending the money?
3: It's
2: the distortion that it imposes on the economy. We have a theory, wrong, wrongly held, uh, refuted by good economic theorists well over 30 years ago, that uh, military spending is the same thing as other forms of uh, investment or consumption. This is simply not true. It has no economic value whatsoever. It is uh, pure make-work kind of programs by the government that uh, are unnecessary and uh, utterly wasteful. There's uh, no evidence at all that this uh, contributes one iota to uh, uh, economic prosperity in this country. In fact, it is one of the most expensive ways you could imagine in which the government could simply put people to work. They might go out and hire people to do any number of projects, but the last one that you ought to hire them to do would be to make supersonic fighters to fight a war with the Soviet Union, which hasn't existed for 15 years.
0: We did see a contraction of U.S. military bases uh, around the world, I believe, the, when the uh, Philippine Air Base, the Clark Air Base closed. I can't remember if that was under... When we were
2: kicked out of the Philippines, yeah.
0: Right, right. Uh, but uh, I thought that we had an air base there after we were kicked out of the I, I, I might be, I might be wrong.
2: We've but- been trying desperately to get permission to build one, and we have all sorts of strange gimmicks called visiting forces agreements and things like that that give us a, uh, a you know a nose inside the tent but we've not gotten anything back like subic bay or uh or Clark Air Base, or things of that sort.
0: So, but th- what there was a contraction of U.S. military bases around the world uh, due to popular discontent over them in the foreign countries back in the oh, 80s. Oh, that
2: happens it? regularly. It happens all the time. Okay,
0: and what's the state of that discontent right now? Are we seeing a growing discontent? Or oh, I we think see-
2: there's no doubt that it's growing. We have much, I mean, in Latin America today, uh, they're probably the only country left that even slightly looks favorably on uh, American military presence is Colombia, uh, but everywhere else uh, we are uh, uh, regarded as, uh, as an asthma, as, uh, as a leper. Uh, I would say that now with the uh, military coup in uh, Honduras and its uh, uh, the attacks against it throughout Latin America, the Soto Cano Air Base there, which has been there since the days of the war against the uh, Counter revolutionaries, by the counter revolutionaries in uh, Nicaragua, uh, still continues and is functioning, but it will be harder to do in the future. uh, There's almost universal disagreement or disapproval of uh, this kind of thing.
0: So what's going to happen first? Is is our money going to run out first for us to be able to afford these? Is our uh, our motivation to put these, uh, these military bases around the world, is that going to be undermined? Or do you think it, the first thing that's going to happen is uh, the discontent by nations overseas and uh, uh, forcing us out rather than us pulling us out?
2: Well, it's hard to say which would come first. It seems to me that the great disappointment here is in the Obama administration. I greatly admire the things that the president has done on uh, his health care initiative. He attempts to bring uh, uh, global warming under control uh, and uh, to uh, improve the efficiency of our transportation system Uh, and things of this sort, Uh, as well as, of course, reversing the disastrous ideas that uh, George Bush and his staff uh, have imposed on the country for the last eight years. But this can all be reversed by his uh, his uh, obstinate stand on the military, in which we don't fully understand it, nor do I think he's begun to justify it. He Many pundits seem to believe that he could go down as another Franklin Roosevelt. What I actually fear is that he's going to go down as another Lyndon Johnson, who was a very considerable liberal reformer, uh, responsible for important human rights uh, legislation, Voting Rights Act, as well as the War on uh, uh, Poverty, but then he was destroyed by the Vietnam War. Uh, he felt that he uh, it was a legacy that he'd inherited, and he had to continue with it, and it uh, simply ruined him, and ultimately uh, discredited the country. I fear that that history is playing out again, and uh, it no reason to that. Uh, we're going to lose the war in Afghanistan, even if our uh, fiscal condition was perfect. Uh, the uh, That is to say, there's just too many things going on there that we don't understand, that we've done poorly, that we don't fully appreciate the place of uh, Pakistan in this part of the world, uh, the fact that we have been largely responsible for the creation and flourishing of the Taliban, uh, that it is not a vital area for us that uh, in case it should be used as a terrorist stronghold to attack us again as it once was, that's best dealt with by either uh, uh, air power or probably best of all simply through the intrusion of special forces uh, in order to deal with it, not with this kind of massive efforts that we're uh, making all the time and overstating their importance, as well as, of course, causing Fierce casualties among the Afghan people, the Pashtuns, and as as well as among our own NATO allies. This is uh, it's a it's a formula that we've been through several times before. We should have learned our lesson. There's no reason to keep it going, uh, but we're unfortunately uh, still just following our noses on this.
0: Uh, we are speaking with Chalmers Johnson. Uh, he's one of my very favorite guests that we've ever had on our show. He's been on well, several times in the past, and uh, it's great always to have you on, Chalmers. I've got a few more questions for you. I just want to uh, reintroduce you to our audience. He uh, wrote the amazing trilogy that includes Blowback, The Sorrows of Empire, and Nemesis. Uh, those are three books that you should definitely have on your bookshelf. If not to read, just to impress the women who come over. Am I right, mm-hmm. Chalmers? Uh, I don't know about that, or was, they would be impressed, but
2: I would hope you'd want to read them.
0: And uh, you can, uh, we also have uh, some of his most recent articles linked at the front page of our website. You know, in this article that you wrote back in February uh, with Tom Englehart at Tom Dispatch about yep. the impact of the economy on military spending, uh, you compared right. it to uh, the military uh, industrial uh, complex, to the auto industry, and wrote, quote, a similar, if far less well-known, uh, crisis exists as compared to the auto industry, when it comes to the military-industrial complex. That crisis has its roots in the corrupt and deceitful practices that have long characterized the high command of the armed forces, civilian executives of the armaments industries, and congressional opportunists and criminals looking for pork-barrel projects, defense installations for their districts, or even bribes for votes. Given our economic crisis, this estimated trillion dollars we spend each year on the military and its weaponry is simply unsustainable. If it's that... Evil. If our military budget is that bad, how much do you think it should be, or could be cut, and still uh, keep the the way in which our military, at least, let's say the Pentagon, would view our military and security interests uh, still fully stocked and supplied?
2: Well, we have a lot of good thought on that uh, subject these days. Uh, there's a, uh, a new study out by some of the most experienced uh congressional and other budget officials of the Pentagon over the last thirty years from the uh uh center for defense Inf- information in washington d c we know what to do uh that is to say, Obama tried to make great uh uh headlines out of a measly eight billion dollars cut uh from uh weapons systems that we don't need, including certainly the f twenty two We don't need the f thirty five either uh, that uh, we already have the most effective weapon on earth in the form of the F 16. Uh, we uh, that That is this sort of uh, we've gotten used to this kind of thinking during the Cold War, in which the nature of the arms race was to forever uh, monitor everything the Soviet Union did, anytime a rocket went off or something like that, to uh, find out, uh, to follow its down, see what it's its rage was things of that sort then he sent it back to the Pentagon to put in an order for an air for a rocket that would do the same thing only uh, several percentage points higher we did that and then they followed and emulated us and it went on to this spiral where we ended up oh by the uh, the late uh, 1960s with over 35,000 nuclear weapons fortunately for us for the world we'd never used one uh, but it was a a perfect example of military Keynesianism of uh, using the uh, the military budget as if it were a jobs program of a way of uh, putting people to work. Uh, we uh, uh, spent well over five trillion dollars during the Cold War on nuclear weapons. This was a uh, not just a military secret weapon, but an economic secret weapon. We thought, uh, as it turns out, it wasn't, and it uh, drained. Our economy disastrously, in terms of uh, concentrated research, uh, all turned into military research, uh, into affecting and skewing the nature of our uh, scientific establishment in our research universities, uh, and one thing after another that, uh, over time, add up. The effects are cumulative. Uh, we are now facing them. We were warned about it by Eisenhower and his famous speech about the military-industrial complex. We didn't pay attention, and we now see what he was talking about.
0: You know, uh, there's a couple of things that you just said in that response that I I just got to ask you about. Uh, First of all, um, we've spent trillions on this Cold War mentality, a Cold War mentality that uh, has not gone away uh, since 1989. Uh, some people were even being critical of the Bush administration and the way that they approached uh, the current Iraq War and the way that they were thinking about it from a Cold War perspective, the way that their whole neoconservatives, uh, neoconservative right. uh, thinking uh, was all based in Cold War thinking. Uh, so if our spending on our military was based in Cold War thinking, uh, this is something that worries me, and you've got to tell me if this is the case. Before we stop or cut spending in the military, do we have to spend more on the right things that we should have been spending our money on this whole time than we're making nuclear weapons or working on a Cold War, strat- Cold War conventional strategy, when that certainly isn't going to be the future of uh, U.S. military warfare?
2: Well, I think that's evident uh, that even Obama seems to recognize that. It's just after a while he doesn't seem to have any idea where the money might come from except to uh, print more of it with its inevitable consequences in inflation and debasement of the currency uh, over the long run. But we've uh, obviously wasted huge amounts of time in dealing with uh, 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 global warming, uh, with uh, emissions uh, of burning fossil fuels and things of that sort. We've... uh, uh, we are not competitive in any number of areas that we used to dominate. The automotive industry is a basket case, as we all know, uh, and uh, yet the report, the press, continues to report it as if uh, General Motors is going to pop back into uh, uh, into great uh, economic success soon. It's uh, conceivable they could design a good and effective car. It seems inconceivable they could regain. The uh, the initiative, or uh, cause uh, the Japanese and the Germans to uh, give up on what they've already achieved, or for that matter, the Chinese, which are just in the process of uh, launching an automotive industry that will be very powerful. We are in the process of losing uh, our uh, our acumen as a as a manufacturing country. We don't make that much anymore at all of any value, except military weapons. We are easily the world's largest manufacturer of weapons and munitions and the world's largest exporter of them. This is not uh, something that we should be proud of.
0: So if the military budget is now, as you were saying, is is just a jobs program, uh, which is now a but jobs... But another
2: p- way of saying, we keep talking about where's the money going to come from for the things that are obviously necessary given the state of our economy and with an unemployment rate of 9.5%. Right. The truth of the matter is, we have the money. It's just we've got to quit wasting it on, of all things, eight hundred military bases in other people's countries that nobody uses. That we have uh, people in our armed forces that simply sit there comfortably day in, day out, pushing pencils and driving a tank around every once in a
0: while. But if this is if this is a jobs program, does that make it more difficult to cut today, considering the economic crisis that we're in?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. That is. Congress has is, uh, is simply been corrupted by this, uh, this subject, and uh, they will, uh, I mean, the, uh, the two uh, mother hands of the Defense Facilities Subcommittee of the Senate Armed Services Committee are uh, Diane Feinstein of California and Kay Bailey Hutchinson of, uh, of Texas. These are the states with the largest number of military bases, and all you have to do is even slightly propose closing a military base that hasn't been of any value since the Civil War, and you will hear uh, shouts, moans, groans from the liberal press, from the Boy Scouts, from everything else, keep our base open.
0: So, I mean, it seems like a real uphill battle. So, I mean, are are we... Well, I think we're
2: beginning to describe how an empire comes to an end, of the costs of wrong-turning we took in the past. And clearly, if we can't even discuss it, if we don't have an analysis of it, we continue to... uh, Tolerate the waste of resources on things like the F twenty two, then it is hopeless. That is to say, it's not exactly rocket science to predict what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, and and making it a soft landing is not. That that doesn't look like the future that the uh, government has uh, pointed us towards. It looks like this is going to be. Doesn't look like it. Yeah. Well, even though it's uh, Fourth of July, it's always great talking to you, gentlemen. Even though well, that was I a little bit depressing, so but uh, appreciate
2: it. But I think the Fourth of July is a perfectly appropriate time to uh, to be talking about it.
0: Why isn't this what isn't this what George Washington and Thomas Jefferson wanted?
2: Well, exactly. <laughs> and that is to say, uh, there was a time in our country when we used to open Congress by reading George Washington's farewell address, mm-hmm. in which he warned us about the danger of standing armies. of uh, of the interests that come with uh, large armies no longer under the control of the people. And uh, we have it. We have it in spades.
3: Yeah.
0: And by the way, that is a great way. Uh, you know, I remember as a kid. I don't know what religion you were raised. I was raised Roman right. really Catholic, and on Good Friday, we weren't allowed to go out um, from noon to three, and mm-hmm. we had to sit in the house. and My mom would read from the Bible, and we'd fall asleep. Uh, so, well, who, on the
2: Fourth of July in the past, why I used to, my father used to put the kids together and bore us to death. By reading the Declaration of Independence.
0: Well, see, I would, you know, I would suggest that people who listen to our show if they if they haven't read it in the past uh, this weekend, if not today, read George Washington's farewell address. It is amazing. It will open your eyes to what you know. You always hear these people saying, "This is what the founding fathers wanted," or "This is what the founding You're fathers not. wanted." Read what they wanted, and it'll make you rethink what uh, this country is supposed to be. Uh, we well, the- just
2: the Declaration of Independence. Read about uh, the uh, the colonialists in their uh, war against the british one of their charges is against george the third for stationing uh, foreign troops that don't behave properly in the midst of civilians well we are certainly the greatest violators of that principle in the world today yeah.
0: Uh, one last question for you, Chalmers. We've been speaking with the amazing author, Chalmers Johnson. Uh, you got to check out if, if the first one I read was the first one that came out, which was Blowback. It uh, blew my mind. I thought it was an amazing book. Sorrows of Empire, great. Nemesis, also a great book. His writing uh, can be found at Tom Dispatch, can be found at Truthdig. Uh, we have links to all of his books and uh, writing at the front page of our website, uh, so you can find all the information about Chalmers right there. One last question for you, Chalmers, and as mm-hmm. always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. We started this interview by talking about the impression that these U.S. military bases give to other nations around the world. These hundreds of millions of dollars, you were talking about the newest one in uh, Islamabad is going to be $736 million. Right. Uh, second in size only to the uh, Bush administration's Iraq base. Uh, how much money these costs is the impression it gives the people overseas who are living near these bases how much of the presence of U.S. military bases around the world, 150 nations, 800 bases, how much of that is why they hate us in reference to the question that was actually being asked shortly after 9-11? How much, you know, because some people were discussing it, and then that kind of conversation, that, uh, that discussion, yes. that died. But how much of these bases is why they hate us?
2: Oh, I think that there's just no question. And even in Afghanistan today, as we launch a new... Uh offensive and a surge in Helmand province and things of that sort. The press is now finally acknowledging we're simply disliked. We're not wanted here. This is an old country, much older than we are, with uh, almost a genetic predisposition predis- toward defending the country through guerrilla warfare they have for so many centuries one way or another. We're not being welcomed. That There's something absurd about the United States trying to make Pakistan admire us and, and have a docile relationship with us in foreign policy. After all, Pakistan is a devout Islamic country. They're not fanatics. Uh, the jihad is not terribly popular there, uh, as it is in, it did not terribly popular in many parts of the Islamic world. But uh, when you consider the United States has a virtual alliance with the two most anti-Islamic countries on Earth, namely Israel and India, it's simply implausible. I mean, this is not what you would expect serious strategists, serious diplomats, serious military officers to contemplate as a winning uh, uh, gimmick to try and uh, carry out. Uh, I just simply don't think it's going to work, and I don't believe that the people who have put us in this mess know how to do it because... uh, they're the ones that that uh, armed the Taliban uh, in order to fight the Soviet Union in the 1980s with other disastrous consequences.
0: Chalmers, always a pleasure, always an honor to have you on our show. Happy Fourth of July. Um, keep up the amazing work, and uh, everybody should buy everything that you've ever written. How about that? Well, that's very kind of you. <laughs>
2: nice to have you say so. Happy Fourth of July to you.
0: And the the one other thing I wanted to mention, you wrote the book review in Truthdig in May for a book called uh, Empire of Bases, and you raved about that book and how it's a great collection of uh, essays on U.S. imperialism and U.S. military. Edited by
2: Catherine Metz. She's a quite smart scholar in this area at De Brown University.
0: In fact, from that review was where I found David Vine, and we had him on the show a few weeks ago to talk ah, about Diego Garcia. So uh, that looks like an exceptional book as well. So it's thanks. So wh- it is
2: wonderful, yeah.
0: And so thanks so much for being back on our show, Chalmers. It's always a pleasure. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the rest of your summer. You too. Thank right. you. Take care.
2: You are here, and this is hell.
1: Welcome back if that interview was informative and depressing i am sorry to report that uh, american empire has only uh, expanded since that interview was held 14 years ago sure we're not in large-scale shooting wars anymore like we were in iraq and afghanistan but nonetheless we still have those 800 odd bases all over the world, the same posture towards pretty much everyone who doesn't align with uh, what American elites see as American interests, and now our uh, administration, our media landscape, our corporate media landscape that is, seems to be ramping up for a new cold war with China. You gotta have a a boogeyman to keep the foreign policy establishment relevant, to keep the military industrial complex humming. And this war between Ukraine and Russia isn't gonna go on forever. Celebrating America's separation from a genocidal and at least for its time hypercapitalist empire to start its own this is hell and if you found that interview informative and appreciated the depth it went to the critical analysis it weighed against american empire something you won't be able to find in the mainstream media then consider supporting this is hell on patreon you can find us at patreon.com slash this is your donation helps support our show and its ability to interview scholars public interest journalists friendly folks at the NGOs and uh, many many other crucial voices who are marginalized in the corporatized media in addition to supporting this bong ripping analysis you also get access to over 400 patreon exclusives episodes which feature timely monologues on the issues de jour from chuck mertz as well as hand-picked interviews from the archives which go back to 1996 when the show began You also get first crack at answering the question from hell for the week. Which, by the way, question from hell will be returning next week. As will our fearless leader, Chuck Mertz. More on that in a moment. And. In a new perk, you get to ask Chuck any question from hell you want. And I. We'll read it on the air and bear witness to Chuck scrambling for an answer. So if all this appeals to you, look us up on patreon.com slash this hell and uh, make a contribution. Your support is greatly appreciated as always, as is the support by all of our listeners We just got an update from Chuck this morning, and he is able to sit up now with rest in between bouts of sitting up. He's even walked around a little bit, but the pain is still uh, pretty rough. He was able to email this morning, so I was happy to see him in my inbox. It had been a while. So to hasten his recovery, I encourage all of you to chime in on social media, tell us what you've been up to, maybe send Chuck some well wishes. We love hearing from you listeners, and I know Chuck does as well. This episode, as I said at the top of the hour, is my last in this hiatus stint it's been fun holding down the fort you've all been very generous with your time listening to my ramblings and these very hard-hitting interviews from the first decade of the 21st century when america was hitting serious limits in its imperialism at least in, it was a humbling experience, knowing that you can bomb a country into the Stone Age and still have very little to show for it except for, uh, you know, several hundred thousand dead people. Up next, we have Jeff Dorchens' <clears throat> Moment of Truth. And I would say i have him on the line, but that would be a lie, for this whole episode, including Jeff's segment, is pre-recorded. In fact, Jeff's segment comes to you from November of
3: 2018. One, two, you know!
1: This is hell. One, two, you know what
0: to do. One more time. The moment of truth, the moment of truth, the moment of truth, the
3: moment of truth, the moment of truth, the moment of truth, the moment of truth, the moment of
2: truth, the moment of truth, the moment
4: of truth. On some bats of the Red Forest. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Among the trees swarm at least 122 distinctly different species of bat, each unique to the red forest on the fat island of Langostan, in the middle seasoning archipelago. Hardly anyone ever goes there other than bat enthusiasts, professional and amateur, because of the great confusion. But no bat has yet been denied into one or another official taxonomic slot, so it's unclear What is so bewildering? Maybe it's the sheer number of species in so limited a space. No one knows how limited. In any case, the climate is both tropical and subtropical and extremely humid. Two main genera of bats comprise the numerous species, all but two of those two exceptions later. These two grand groups are the bug eaters, which echolocate, and the fruit eaters, which do not. The bug eaters tend to be smaller than the fruit eaters. Bug eaters have been known to eat birds on occasion. Particularly vulnerable to predation is the typeface hummingbird, which is the size and shape of an 18-point-times New Roman comma and the smallest hummingbird known. They only exist in the Red Forest. Happily, they are a prolific species and swarm in their thousands among the apricot shrubs like minnows amidst seaweed. Among the bug-eaters are the orchid-nosed bat, the bee bat, the tissue bat, and the glass-eared bat. Each species echolocates at a unique frequency in one of the musical modes, frequently mixolydian. The fruit-eating bats, or dog-faced bats, seem to be descended from the early wild gliding foxes of Panasia. However, they are no relation, except in the very distant sense that all mammals are. As stated above, these bats are neither able nor inclined to echolocate. They just look around with their eyes. As they are nocturnal, they often bump into things. While bug eaters range in size from that of a bumblebee to that of a robin, the fruit eaters are much larger. The largest, the schnauzer dragon, known to possess a wingspan of upwards of eight feet. The indigo umbrella monkey is of more manageable proportions, meaning it can be fit conveniently into an overnight case, although one should expect it to be displeased with the experience. The indigo umbrella is one of the above-mentioned species falling neither into one major genera nor the other. It eats both insects and fruit, as well as birds, roots, tree bark, fungi, cheese, small prey animals, snakes, snake eggs, cake, buns, onion rings, flower nectar, and carrion. I have just remembered one supremely annoying aspect of traveling to any of the islands of Langostan or anywhere in the middle seasoning archipelago. The in-flight service on the regional Barcola Airlines. Never is anything given gratis aboard an intracoastal flight on this airline. Everything from earbuds to ice, is for purchase only, and the flight attendants take frequent strolls up and down the strangely wide aisles, calling out hot dogs, food for sale, pretzels, salt cod, milk, prawns, pigtails, peas, kingfish, purple yam, mush, and I cerveza, Coca-Cola, limonada, naranjada, agua fresca. The prices aren't unreasonable, but on returning to the civilized world of normal things like complimentary ice, one has the unpleasant feeling of having been nickel and dimed at every opportunity. As the reader or listener has probably surmised, the umbrella monkeys are a subcategory of fruit eaters, the indigo one being only ambivalently positioned among that crowd due to its freakish dietary habits. The umbrella monkeys are so-called because of their baboon-like faces, the umbrella-like curvature of their wing-support finger bone structure, and their propensity to climb in the upper branches of trees. Interestingly enough, among umbrella monkeys or climbing umbrellas or umbrella spiders or simply umbrellas is found another exception to the fruit eater versus bug eater bifurcation, the yellow umbrella, alluded to in the Grouse Family novelty song, Yellow Umbrella. Hey fella, ya yeah, yellow umbrella, yellow umbrella has never looked sweller. Wella well, well uh, a yellow umbrella Do uh, The Yellow Umbrella is the color of a very yellow yellow Labrador retriever, and its short haired face looks quite like a miniature version of the canid's visage, though its torso resembles more a plump Angora rabbit like thing, except when swimming, hunting its favorite food, fish, as well as river polyps, with its wings clutched to its sides at which time it looks like a blonde, tailless, dog faced river bat with a spidery external rib cage webbed with yellow leather. While bug eaters echolocate and fruit eaters do not, the yellow umbrella, though ostensibly in the latter clan, uses something akin to radar. It emits radio waves at frequencies in a narrow band range between eighty eight point three and ninety one point seven megahertz, commonly known as the college radio or public radio transmission ghetto though its signals rarely interfere with radio programming due to its limited broadcast range. You would have to bring a yellow umbrella into a studio and broadcast its signals via antenna to detect them, as people do now and then for reasons described below. A gland or organ, approximately the size and shape of a quail egg or new potato, situated below the bat's sternum, produces the electromagnetic emission. When the yellow umbrella's signals have ever been translated into audible sound, something quite strange has occurred. The pulses are invariably a garly, high-pitched phrase in Spanish, Portuguese, Garifuna, Kekchi, Mopan, Mayan, Creole, Plautdeitsch, or English, similar in a way to the mimicry of a parrot, but in content always with a leftist slant. This may be due to the left leanings of visitors to the Red Forest who concern themselves with ecological conservancy, indigenous rights, resource management, bats and other like occupations. Free the Hahi, was one referring to the Red Forest indigenous inhabitants. Another crush the patriarchy. Abolish debt. Dissolve the IMF. Private property is theft from the people. Abolish prison. Yet another was ban, slash, and burn, though that would have been thought to refer to a destructive agricultural practice in the Amazon region, 1,500 miles from the Red Forest. Along similar lines, for a long time, the signals dissented to the rule of Brazil's fascist president. Down with Bolsonaro was the sole phrase they would broadcast for months whenever brought into the local transmission station by jocular anti-fascists. The president was quite embarrassed by this and tried his best to influence policy in the archipelago, over which he has zero jurisdiction, cajoling and wheedling any way he could to get someone to hunt the yellow umbrellas to extinction or ruin their habitat or restrict left-wing travel to the Red Forest or encourage right-wingers to go there and march through the undergrowth shouting pro-Bolsonaro slogans, President Donald Dump, at times explicitly or implicitly a target of the signals, attempted to exert influence with threats of a trade embargo, to no avail. None of either demagogue's efforts was the least bit effective. The signals of the yellow umbrella monkey bat, one of only three semi-aquatic umbrella monkey species, remain firmly on the Marxist to post-Marxist end of the ideological spectrum, much to the chagrin of the ruling and owning elite in the region and beyond and to the delight of activists, academics, revolutionary scientists, teachers, folk singers, investigative journalists, liberation clergy and their congregations, and podcasters. For the time being, protected by impish activists and their popularity with the region's populace, the bats of the Red Forest of the Fat Island can be expected to flourish. On average, at least one never-before-seen species of bat is discovered there each year to say nothing of the as-yet-undiscovered possible curative properties of one or another bat's guano. And almost everyone agrees that, with the amount of bat (laughs) barraging us daily in the world, it would be nice if some of it turned out to have a use. This has been the Moan of Truth. Good day!
0: Now, you know that I am not one to be regularly or easily offended by (laughs) blasphemy. I mean, at the the beginning of this show, I say this is God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. I don't care if you use God's... No one
3: has done that yet.
0: Right? Uh, I don't care if you use God's name in vain or Illinois or wherever you use God's name. I really just don't care. But my blasphemy sensitivity... My blasphemy meter has been challenged, Jeffy, by a new Uh-oh. TV show. What is it? Have That's you heard play. of the CBS show? Because they always have these Christian dramas on CBS. God Friended Me.
3: <laughs> no. What? <laughs>
0: There is a show called God Friended Me, and I didn't know it existed, but on, like, the second or third episode, I saw a commercial for it, and they said, this is, how, this is, the, this is the tease. On this week's God Friended Me, what happens if God unfriends
3: you? <laughs> Wait a minute. Are they talking about God on Facebook? Yes. Why Friended?
0: Why Facebook? That's it. It's the social uh, media for old, annoying uncles, so I guess God is kind of like an old, annoying uncle, so...
3: God on Twitter is so much better.
0: Well, right, because it limits him, you know, because he's always a little bit wordy. I wish they would have stuck with uh, 144 characters just for God's Twitter account. But this leads me to a question, Jeffy.
3: Yeah?
0: What the hell is on Allah's Instagram page?
3: Oh, that's a good question. I, I mean, he's not allowed to have an uh, Instagram. Instagram is all pictures. Right. See? It's a, what is it? I mean, it's all just going to be weird geometric patterns, I think.
0: Alex was saying that he would have one of those, you know, default avatars where it's just like a silhouette. Or an egg (laughs) That's what he said too Look at that Look at you two Thinking on this page Same All right, Jeffy How was your stay In uh, Chicago Over the last week Or so
3: It was so great Man Thank you so much Thank you And Laura Thank you Alex You were a blast To talk to When we went to the bar And uh, Pete And Wally And everybody Who was there Chris and Mickle and David and all of Theater Ubleck, Martha Bain for hosting the uh, Ublek show. It was such a great time. The Ublek show was great. The radio show was great. All the alcohol was great. And and all the, oh my God, I ate at that Yemeni place just before I left.
0: The one over on, on Claremont and Devon. How was it?
3: It was great. I had the organ meat breakfast <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a side of shuk
0: What's shuk
3: It's just like scrambled eggs with vegetables
0: and stuff. Oh crazy, but it it they that organ meat thing. There's actual a brec- breakfast meal with the worth organ meat or are you just order No, those? it's the appetizer. Okay, it's I see. The
3: appetizer. I just had it for breakfast. It was the same size as the egg. <laughs> and those breads they give you are like they're the size of a pizza.
0: So if anybody visits us during uh this is hell office hours, joins us during this is hell office hours just a block west and like twenty feet north of Devon, it's I think it's called Yemeni Restaurant. I can't remember what no, it's, it's called. No, it's called Sheba. That's at Sheba, S H E E B A Sheba. It's a Yemeni restaurant. One e over over only one e, whatever. Um, so uh, it's over at one Devon feet. and Clare. I just heard that in my talk back. Only one e. <laughs> 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 All right, Jeffy. Until yeah, next time, time. we'll tell we'll tell you on Monday uh, what the deal is with next week's. Uh, this is how. Yeah.
3: Oh, Pete was so great, too. He gave me a great taste of the rye whiskey finished in sauternes casks. Oh, do,
0: did you have uh, the smoked Malort?
3: I never did. I'm going to have to come back for that.
0: Oh, my God. That's insane where they inject smoke, cherry wood smoke, into Malort. It's it's insane.
3: Sounds horrible. <laughs> it's awesome.
0: Don't say horrible things like that. All right, Jeffy, Till next time.
3: <laughs> okay, I'll stay beautiful. You do, too. Thank you, sir.
2: You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.
1: Smoked malort. Ugh. These are the sort of cultural achievements that uh, transpire... Quite regularly at Carrie's Lounge at 2251 West Devon Avenue. If you feel like checking out that scene and seeing what other cultural achievements we've been up to over here, consider coming to Office Hours every Wednesday evening from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Chuck and the gang hold court and... Listener regulars and bar regulars mingle it up. What's officially called a meet and greet is actually more of a drink and think. And I must say, ever since joining the show, participating in office hours has been a life-changing experience for me. I'm Will Ippen. Producer at This Is Hell, filling in for Chuck Mertz. Chuck will be back on Monday, July 10th. And I'm sure you are all as excited as I am for that triumphant return. I'll be away until July 19th show. I'll be in Colorado with my awesomely weird family i look forward to uh returning to the show anyway listeners it's been fun thanks for listening keeping you and stay tuned my demon is on my
4: butt <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller uh-huh. and my demon tries to knock me down